Greetings to one and all. This is the Church is Changing podcast. I'm Paul Nixon, and today I get a chance to visit with a friend, a ministry buddy down the street from where I live in Washington, D.C. I used to actually office in their building. I am here with Donna Claycomb Sokol, who is the pastor of the Mount Vernon Place United Methodist Church. Donna, welcome to Church is Changing. Thank you, Paul. I'm glad to be with you. Donna, you have been in Washington a while. Have you been 17 years at Mount Vernon Place? How long? Almost 18. I can't believe it. Oh, my goodness. You're seeing almost a generation now go by of people and the social change and so forth. I mean, Washington's a dynamic city and ever-changing in every neighborhood, but Mercy, how has your neighborhood changed since you got started? You came to a dying church, by the way. I mean, it was down to the wire kind of when you walked in. Go ahead and tell us, Paul, what did you once say about my church, about Mount Vernon Place? (laughs) The first time I visited there, I said, this is, I don't think I said it was the most dysfunctional church, but maybe I did, the most dysfunctional church that I ever visited. It was quite a compliment at the time, (laughs) let me tell you. I was honest. (laughs) You were. So what are the changes in our community? And it's your neighborhood, as you just mentioned. It is. So we are down to, I think, one surface parking lot in our neighborhood, in our immediate neighborhood, where we used to have a tremendous mm-hmm. number of surface parking lots. So all of those parking lots have been developed by hotels and apartment buildings and businesses or condominium buildings. There is certainly a lingering, very tangible and visible reminder of pandemic's impact. Mm-hmm. So when you walk around Gallery Place Chinatown, you still see a significant number of businesses that are closed or available retail space. So Washington, D.C. has not been quick to bounce back from pandemic. We see a lot fewer people in the office buildings around us. We've seen a lot of parks that are currently being redeveloped, so places where there were a large number of people experiencing homelessness who had been living in tent communities. So right now, I think if you were visiting our city in downtown, you might ask why so many parks are being rehabbed with signs that show that they are closed off. And this week, I think in particular, we are seeing the largest number of tourists that I have seen in three years. And I was reminded three years ago how I was praying that tourists would return during cherry blossom season. And this morning, I found myself being a little frustrated with traffic (laughs) in cherry blossom There was traffic. There was traffic today. Yes. Lots of traffic. I hadn't thought about the cherry blossoms. Yeah, those folks, they sort of take over things. And it is good to see them back. It is. And to see the city slowly coming back. It really is. Yes, indeed. A huge blessing. So you came into this community when it was kind of on the front end of a gentrification after, I mean, this neighborhood where your church is based has been a lot of different places over the years, a lot of different kind of populations and so forth. As you came in, there was sort of a rise in young professionals that were moving into this area. And I think that's been one of the keys to the Renaissance at your church. But you were kind of down to the wire. What happened early on that were some of the keys to this church coming back from being almost gone to really being a vibrant and vital place again? So we were given an opportunity to redevelop our property back in 2005. The congregation voted to sell a portion of our property in 2005. And what that meant for us is that we had to completely vacate our property. And I tell people we had to get rid of a whole lot of junk. Uh, We had to get rid of physical junk in the closets. 
but we also had to get rid of junk that was filling our calendars. A whole lot of things that we were doing because we have been doing them for the last 10, 30, 40, 50, 60, even 70 years. And so cleaning out the closets was a real key to our component. I am a big fan of pruning. We know agriculturally that things cannot grow regularly and abundantly and fruitfully unless they are regularly cut back. And the same is true with congregations. In this case, we cut back to the bare minimum, which was worship at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. So I would say that has been the key to our renaissance. The other thing that we were gifted with was a group of 80 and 90-year-olds who were willing to take a chance. And so I think we often think that 80 and 90-year-olds cannot change, that they are so stuck in their ways. But this particular group of people who are now part of the great cloud of witnesses were willing to say, I'm not sure that God is finished with our church yet, and this might be our only hope. And so they were willing to let go and see what God could do. There was a really clear and compelling call from God, both that I had heard and heard very abundantly and clearly, but that our congregation also started to hear. We had very tremendous tangible support from our bishop and from our district superintendent. And then we started to have a young adult show up, and we learned that it just takes one person who shows up and feels called to the community And that that one person quickly becomes two, those two people become four, those four people become eight, and it's a multiplication that starts to happen, and the young adult community started to grow. Alongside older adults who were willing to befriend them, develop community with them, and love them. There are several really powerful points that you have already made, and we could like take the whole conversation to chase any of these, but one of them is about this decluttering thing. And this is something that I have really been running into in my work of late, where I have have lately come to the conclusion that ministry is no harder today than it has been at any time in our lifetimes, except that we have to declutter all of the 20th century stuff that we've brought with us that's not helpful at this time. There's a lot of first century stuff and a lot of ancient Christianity that's immensely helpful at this time, but there is some stuff that really needs to be thrown out. And our lives are cluttered with it. Our churches are in paradigms that are just not in sync with their opportunity. But wherever I see places that that really can declutter and can look fresh at their mission field, I see thriving ministry. It's so true. And it seems like you've seen that as well. But you also talk about those allies, those saints who were just, they had been a part of of some amazing days at Mount Vernon Place in another era, in another century, but they got to see, to peek over the mountaintop. They did. And they were willing to do that. And that's a beautiful thing. They did. They didn't quite get to the promised land, just like Moses, but they saw enough of it to know that their church wasn't going to die, that the doors were not going to close. You were sent in to a tough job, but you had connectional support in case the group got a little restless. I know that the bishop that sent you, well, I don't know, which which bishop sent you there? Bishop Scholl, John Scholl. Okay, it was Bishop Scholl. Mm -hmm. Golly, I can't believe, it just seems like yesterday. But Bishop Scholl was very supportive over the years that he was there, and you've had that kind of support, especially in those critical years when big changes were happening, and it would have been disorienting for some of those folks. And there was an alignment there. And then this whole idea of waiting until you discover your call. You know, what's God calling us to be in this new moment? What has surprised you along the journey? Did you expect anything to happen like what did? 
first of all? So I expected a new building to be built. Okay. And a new building was constructed. Uh-huh. I expected a new congregation to come. I expected it to come more quickly than it did. The church is not like the field of dreams where if we build it, they will come. We have an extraordinary facility, but people do not come because of the facility. In fact, we had a lot of people come when we were outside of our building and worshiping across the street because people said, let's go to this church that can't hide behind the beauty of its building, this congregation that can't hide, but it's just raw and fresh. Yeah, change is slow, 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 slow. That has continued. It has been my observation that in D.C., when I came here, it was a little bit of a culture shock. D.C. has been 10 to 15 years ahead of the United States in terms of some kinds of social change. So you were dealing with some of the issues way before COVID when you came here that some communities in the United States are just now confronting in terms of just cultural change, especially the decentralization of the church as the center of of their community and their lives. And you've been working with that reality the whole time you were here. Very much so. You've been pioneering in that reality the whole time you were here. Very much so. And I think that that is one of the largest wake-up calls that I have as we continue to emerge from pandemic, that the church is one of the few institutions that is only open for an hour or two once a week and expects everyone to be free during that particular time. There are very other few places that say, we want to be a real part of your life. We want to change your life, <laughs> but we expect you to only be available for one or two, this one or two hours. A week. I was thinking I, we, we, when Sears was going down, we'd go in there, you know, every, it got more and more Spartan, and, but the sales got better toward the end. But they were open night and day, it seems, and they still went down because they weren't in sync with their community and with the, the needs of people and so forth. The church, two hours, two hours, yeah. So we're missing some folks right there <laughs> who can't quite get to the store on time. Or perhaps a lot. <laughs> or perhaps a lot. The disruption of COVID has been a blessing and a challenge. Was it a blessing at all for you? It's a really powerful question. Was the pandemic a blessing? It would take me a long time to be able to call it a blessing because it has been filled with so much heartache and so much pain. As a pastor, I believe it was some of the most difficult days I've ever experienced. I don't know of any pastor who said yes to a call to ministry to look into a camera on Sunday morning in the middle of your living room and preach. Those days, and I've been thinking a lot about Easter of 2020. When we were first told that we'd be home for about 50 days and we started to sing Christ the Lord is risen in May and thinking that we would just celebrate Easter a month later. Mm. So has it been filled with blessing? I would say that the, if there is, well, the blessing would be some of the ways in which our community has expanded. And so Mount Vernon Place has always had a beautiful relationship with people who come to our city once a year for a convention. We're catty corner from the Washington Convention Center and right across the street from the largest hotel in Washington. And so we have people who show up for a convention, stumble into our community on a Sunday morning. And then the next year, when they're making their plans to return to Washington, they literally make their plans around Sunday because they want to be in our worship, in our pews for worship on a Sunday. 
And so I would say one of the most significant gifts was we were not live streaming before the pandemic. Our March 15th of 2020 happened because I brought my iPhone into the sanctuary and knew how to go to Facebook Live. But now we have some of these convention center guests who worship with us every single week, people who have not been able to find either a welcome in a faith community where they are, if they're part of the LGBTQ plus community, or people who really discovered something special here and have been able to stay connected to it. We also have a lot of MVP parents, so parents of young adults who do not have an active faith community wherever they live. And they are with us every single week right now as well. So I would say those are the blessings. Another blessing, we started a morning prayer group that first week of pandemic in March of 2020. And those people are still praying together Mm. Monday through Friday, five days a week on Zoom. And that includes people who live in the city and people who live outside of the city. So those would be some of the blessings I could name. But it would take me a while to be able to say, oh, goodness, thank God for the silver lining over mercy. Look at all the heartache that we've experienced. Definitely. It's been a painful season. I guess when I talk about blessing, I'm thinking about the fact that the disruption was a little bit like plowing a field. For a lot of churches, it was a wake-up moment and a time to adjust quickly to an increasingly digital age, as well as an, an era now where the habits of assuming that I'm going to be available to to go to Sears between 10 and noon on Sunday are even further weakened. So either we awakened to that and began to adapt, or we really took a hard, hard hit. And probably everybody took a hit anyway, because it was hard. But I have this sense that after what this particular church has been through, going back to the beginning of your time, you'll do okay rolling with, with the after effects of a pandemic. We are trying to learn every single week something new. And that I w- that is another blessing because we got into the habit of evaluating every single week. So we would evaluate. Let's look and see what happened on this Sunday. Let's look and see what happened this past week. What went well? What needs to be strengthened? What needs to be continued? What needs to be stopped? So there was this really beautiful and powerful time of evaluating that happened weekly that I think the church doesn't necessarily do very often, if even annually. Now, you planted in a certain season and moment, I say you planted, you really, I consider you a church planter, even though the church was existing, but you definitely transitioned them into a new moment, especially as you moved back into the space. But there was a point in time where steadily, they may have been in onesies and twosies, they began to come in, a lot of these younger adults that were living in the center city. And After COVID, are they the same kind of folks that are wandering in, or is it different now? I would say it's many of the same kind of folks who are wandering in, Mm. but I believe that we are in a season where we are willing to be more honest Mm. with each other. Say more. And so I think Washington is a city where you can regularly be who or whatever your business card says about you or whatever your business card doesn't say about you. And so we can regularly hide behind our titles Or if we're working on Capitol Hill, we can hide behind the issues or responsibilities that we have for whatever member of Congress we are working for. COVID had a capacity of unpeeling some of our layers and helping us to live into the vulnerability that is part of all of us. So I think about how many of us are quicker to admit how much we struggled during the last three years 
than we have ever been able to struggle and so, or to admit about our struggles. So I feel people, my experience in recent months has been young adults are a lot quicker to say, I'm really lonely. Or I came here because I really need community. And they're quick to say that in an initial conversation that they have with me, whereas that might have taken several conversations for that type of real honesty and vulnerability to be spoken Mm. um, prior to the pandemic. I also think that we are in a season where people are trying a whole bunch of things to figure out, like, who am I in this season? Who have I become now that I've emerged from this season that has been so difficult? And so faith is one of the things that people are trying, or church is one in many places that people might be stepping into, sometimes literally tiptoeing into, to see, is this where I'm going to find my people? Is this where I'm going to find the community that I'm seeking? Is this where I'm going to find something that might begin to fill part of the void that was either created by COVID or it widened or further identified through pandemic? So I think that there's this real sense of honesty, of vulnerability, and also experimentation in order to discern who am I and who are the people who are going to help me get to where I really want to be, not professionally, but personally. Donna, several years ago, before COVID, another church went into the neighborhood, but it really wasn't a church. It was kind of a new agey exercise thing called Soul Cycle. Now, those have gone in a lot of different places, but what I began to notice, I was having breakfast with one of your church members one Sunday. We watched people going into Soul Cycle, and they were like in their church clothes. They had bought outfits special to go in there to get you know, do whatever they did on their bicycles and to hear Mother Teresa whisper in their ear or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that people do spirituality these days. And when you're living in a place where there's a lot of professional young adults, a lot of them are very much into exploring the new. So that's a part of your population of people that are exploring. When they're coming to you, are you getting people that are willing to sort of re-explore a historical faith? Sure. And I think too, Paul, perhaps we should all take on that approach of exploring. And the church is too often threatened by what they might see as the competition or the other opportunities that people are seizing for how to spend their time on a Sunday morning or how to settle their soul or how to give them an experience of something that is greater than themselves. And what if the church wasn't threatened by that, but learned from that? And so there's a hotel down the street, a few blocks away, Eaton Hotel. It is a very unique place that was established, first and foremost, to be a place that would be welcoming of all people and was started to welcome or came to Washington at the time to welcome all of the people who were coming for different protests Mm. in our city. Mm. And so if you walk into Eaton, it is a powerful lesson in how a facility can tell a story. And so all of their bathrooms, for example, might offer a lesson on gender identity and gender expression. If you walk into one of the bars, the wall is decorated with the story of Ruby Bridges, the young woman who integrated the school system. And so they're using their space to tell stories in really profound ways. If you go and check in as a hotel guest, we've put one of our speakers up there. You don't find a Bible, but you might find books on on how to protect democracy. Mm. And that's what's in your, your hotel room waiting for you. 
But Eaton Hotel is also doing events throughout the week on mindfulness, on restoring your body and your spirit, on relaxation. What if the church took an opportunity to learn from that instead of to be threatened by that? To say, what is it that people are gravitating toward? They're also having compelling conversations throughout the week on issues that matter. And they matter to people of faith, right? Everything is political is personal. Everything that is personal is political. There are issues that matter to us. They matter to Jesus. But why can't the church learn from that instead of be threatened by that? Or soul cycle, for that matter. I mean, I've developed one of the greatest communities right now at Orange Theory Fitness. I show up at 720. If I'm not there three or four days in a row, people ask where I've been. When I walk in on a Monday, they ask me how my weekend was. If I do something really well, they commend me. So that's the kind of community people are looking for, and they're not always going to find that in all of our churches. Certainly not. One of the things that I recall from a group of people that were working in Center City, Phoenix, several years ago, is they said, you can find really good community, really healing and good community in a lot of different places in this city. And then it forced them not only to learn from those places, but also to ask what it will be distinctive, not better, but distinctive about the kind of community that we offer as a part of this social fabric. And and, and for them, it was, one of the things was, hey, we're learning how to pray together. That's something we work on in our community that may not be something they work on somewhere else. So if you want to do that, you know, come see us because we're we're constantly working on that. What would you when you talk about when you think about the distinctiveness of a vital church in the midst of a community where there's some other really really good partners? What are we bringing to the table that you may not be able to find at a cool hotel? That's a really cool hotel. I got I got to find out. Pray. I got to go see that place. I'll go with you. Well, that sounds um, scandalous. That, 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 I'll go to a... That's a <laughs> coffee. That sounds bad. Yeah, we'll, yeah we'll, go, we'll go do coffee over there and look around. What what's what is the church at its best? What's it bring to the social experience? I pray that the church at its best is inviting people to think critically about what does it mean to love God mm. and what does it mean to love our neighbor. And sometimes those need to be reversed. So sometimes it's when people love their neighbor first, when people see people actively and tangibly loving their neighbor, taking risks on behalf of a neighbor, being co-practitioners of justice, then I think people want to be part of that, which may bring them into the church, which may or may not lead to a relationship with God. But prayerfully, if the church is doing its job, we are helping people really figure out how can I love my neighbor better than I love my neighbor tomorrow, better than I love my neighbor today? And then how do I also continue to experience and accept God's love for me? First and foremost, to see myself as a beloved child of Mm. God, and then begin to reciprocate that toward my relationship with God, my creator. You and Joe Biden both agree on something and you disagree on something. I can't wait. <laughs> you both think you have the best job in Washington, and yet you disagree. He thinks it's he thinks it's at sixteen hundred Pennsylvania, and you and you're about a mile to the east. Why do you think you have the best job in Washington? I love that you asked me that question. So, can I tell this story first about where that comes from? Yeah, sure. So, when I first got here, our chairperson of Staff Parish Relations Committee was a woman named Mabel. 
And Mabel was 97 years old and still chairing our personnel committee. Wow. And the first night that I was introduced as the new pastor, so a couple months before I got to Mount Vernon Place, and was meeting with the Staff Parish Relations Committee, the personnel committee, Mabel ended that meeting at the age of 97 by looking me in the eye and saying, Donna, Mount Vernon Place is in the center of Washington. Washington needs Mount Vernon Place, and Mount Vernon Place needs you. Don't you ever forget you have the best job in Washington. Mabel would never Mm, end a meeting without telling those words, without repeating those words. Mount Vernon Place is in the center of Washington. Washington needs Mount Vernon Place. Mount Vernon Place needs you. Don't you ever forget you have the best job in Washington. The only time Mabel did not say those words to me is the day that Mabel died, and I was with her when she took her last breath. Now, Mabel was a prophet. At the time, I thought she was not speaking the truth, but I needed Mabel in my life to keep telling me that when this place did not feel very fruitful or did not feel very affirming. But today I can look back and give you a dozen reasons for why it's the best job in Washington. I think about W.E. Sangster wrote a piece called The Curer of Souls and talked about how being a pastor is a privilege for which no one is truly worthy. And Sangster talks about those moments when someone confides or confesses in us and we get to see the sin flung underneath the table once and for all. He talks about when people are being born or when people are dying, how the call of people's heart is for their pastor, and you not only can go, but that you must go. And I remember hearing those words on my first day of seminary in my introduction to Old Testament and realizing at that moment that I was about to be afforded privileges that I certainly was not going to be worthy of receiving, of being a part of. But then I think about a conversation earlier this week with someone over dinner who's going through deep, deep grief and being welcomed into that space and being welcomed into her story. I think about, I have a little child um, who leaves me a love note every single Sunday and she's just learning how to write. And so sometimes it takes a minute to figure out exactly what she has written but she's working really hard to write something new to me every week. Sometimes it's, you are a great pastor, Donna, and I love you. Um, This past week, it was, thank you for building a great church. So to have a little child leave you a love note in the offering plate every week. I think being able to sit with someone who's a political appointee recently and hearing some of their fears on the criticism that they're receiving and to be able to affirm that they're a beloved child of God and that they're doing a great job. Hearing eight people, we've had eight people in our congregation say yes to a call to ordained ministry. That is an extraordinary privilege Mm. to be able to see God at work in someone's life in a way that wants to make them say yes. So there are moments that remind us all the time that we really do have the best job in whatever community we are a part of. And that goes back to the question that you asked me about, about pandemic. So many of those moments were robbed Mm -hmm. where we couldn't go and hold someone's hand on their deathbed, where we couldn't go to the hospital and hold a newborn baby and thank God for the gift of that child. 
And so that's where I had to really dig deep during these last three years to ask, do I still have the best job in Washington? But I've concluded that I still do, and I'm grateful. In about 10 years into this ministry odyssey in the center of Washington, and I think if you were to spin Washington on a spinner, the the spinner would go right through your church. You were literally at the geographic center of the city. You and, and, and Roger Owens wrote a book entitled A New Day in the City, and that was before COVID. So we've kind of got a, another due day. But what big ideas from that book resonate with you, you know, five or six years after the fact? What, what, what hangs with you from that reflection? Yes, I don't think that they're big ideas. I think that they're ordinary ideas mm-hmm. that we sometimes overlook. Okay. And one of them is excellence matters. And not all of us are sent into healthy churches when we first arrive. So we cannot always count on people coming back because of what they experience in, in worship. But no matter how many people are in the pews or what happens in that service of worship, we can offer our best in an excellent way. We can follow up immediately that afternoon with a thank you for coming to worship. We can work really hard to make sure that there aren't typos in the order of worship. We can make sure that the facilities are clean, that signage is there, some of those things, whatever that looks like. So excellence matters. Small details are always worth paying attention to. The other one would be that pruning really does lead to growth. And we've already talked about that. But letting go, letting go, letting go. Allow yourself to let go and see what can grow in those places where you have cut back. Those would be two. And they're both chapters in the book. One is on why excellence matters and the other one is on pruning. But both of those things are, they're critical practices. You know, excellence really is a lot of small decisions, isn't it? Daily. Daily, small, intentional decisions. I have a book on the shelf here I just read earlier this week by James Clear entitled Atomic Habits. And basically, yes. you know this book. Yeah. And it's this idea, he had a brain injury and then he wanted to play baseball and he couldn't play very well. But when he went off to college and all the everybody was partying all night, he gave himself one leg up by deciding he was going to go to bed at 10 o'clock. And he kept making small decisions that began to add up one good decision after another, these excellent habits. It's hard to say it was that habit and this one and that one that made the difference. It was the accumulation of good habits. And when I think about excellence in the life of a church, often it's 15 things that they do in a certain way because their heart beats a certain way, because they care about the experience of people that are walking in the doors. And if your people don't care yet, if you start caring, and modeling why these small intentional practices matter, other people start to pick up on it. Indeed. If you were to add a chapter five years later, post-COVID, would there be anything new that you would might want to say in that particular book? Or is that book good the way it is? Well, that book is, well, that's a good question. And it's a that great book, book by the way. Of- that book is a great book. New Day in the City by Donna Sokol and Roger Owens. Excellent book. That book is still available. I think that if we if we had to add a, a chapter right now, there would be something about leading in liminal seasons uh-huh. and leading when there when very little is clear. What does that look like, and what is the posture of leadership, or what are the practices that a leader needs to seek to embody on a regular basis? 
in liminal seasons. And that will not be our last liminal season. And that was kind of a, a liminal season that was universal, but liminal seasons come and go to individual places all the time because of certain circumstances. Wow. Donna, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the spirit and the joy that you bring to our neighborhood. That's a lovely thing to say, Paul. Thank you. Thanks for the privilege of sharing time with you. I'm Paul Nixon. I'm here with Donna Claycomb Sokol, who is the pastor of Mount Vernon Place United Methodist Church. She has the best job in Washington, D.C., and we have been happy to visit with her and to learn a little bit more about that today. This is the Church is Changing podcast. It is a ministry of the United Methodist Church. Church is Changing podcast is a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Music is by Sanjay Singh. Visit all our podcasts at podcast.umcdiscipleship.org.